Military Veterans in Journalism proudly presents Sword and Pen. Welcome to another episode of Sword and Pen, a military veterans and journalism podcast dedicated to inspiring, supporting, and educating our MVJ members and veteran community. I am your host, Lori King, and I thank you for tuning in. In this episode of Sword and Pen, I am going to pick the brain of my next guest, podcast pioneer and military veteran, Karan Lenoir, who is about to teach us a thing or two about podcasting, among other things. I admit it, I'm in the toddler stage of this wonderful world of audio interviewing, so I'm always striving to absorb as much knowledge as I can on the subject so the sword and pen can be all that it can be. Yes, I'm borrowing that slogan from the Army. No matter how experienced, seasoned, or old you are, you should never stop learning or think you know it all because technology and trends change so rapidly these days, there's always something new to learn. And learning is what we're going to do for the next hour with Karan, who is also a journalist, producer, photographer, artist, activist, and of course, an MVJ member. She founded the Karanism Media Group, Karanism Audio, and the Center for Sensual Arts. In a nutshell, Karan examines life, sexual politics, faith, and powerful dynamics in arts and entertainment. A formerly homeless disabled veteran, she honorably served in both the U.S. Navy and Army. Her experience informs her advocacy for women, veterans, their voices, and mental health. As a creator and business strategist, she leads with humor and uncommon sense. We are about to talk about that broad skill set, but first, let's start with your talented family. Your dad and grandfather and all of your uncles were photographers. In an earlier conversation we had, you mentioned that when you were younger, photographer was your saving grace, that it helped bring you back to the center and focus on what was real and what wasn't real. So let's get back to that time with your family. Tell us a little bit about them, where you come from, and why you were struck with the realization that photography was your saving grace. Thank you so much for that introduction, Lori. I'll tell you, you know, I am a daughter of Baltimore, born and raised. I lived all over the country. I've served all over the country, uh, but Baltimore will always be my home. Uh, I currently live in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and I did grow up watching everyone in my family with a camera in their hand. Now, on my dad's side of the family, it was visual arts and photography. On my mom's side of the family, it was music and musical theater. We had accomplished artists on both sides of my family, so I got the best of both worlds in massive doses. But I started in radio when I was in the second grade. So storytelling was an intrinsic part of who I am. I started on stage when I was three years old as a dancer and as an actor. So storytelling was such a huge part of just my development, my growth as a girl, as a young woman, into my development as an adult woman. And visual storytelling was a huge part of that just because I saw it every day. I literally saw it every day. I remember going into my Uncle Stevie's house, uh, my late Uncle Stevie, and he became the photographer for the city of Baltimore. Um, Extremely accomplished in his own right, but the candid photographs he would take of the family, the ones that he would take of his wife in the moonlight, there's one, one photograph specifically that spoke so much to her beauty, to her blackness, to her poise, 
to her strength and her vulnerability in a single image. That is the single image I remember the most uh, growing up. And, and that picture was hanging up when they lived in a home on Madison Street in Baltimore. I believe it was Madison uh, in Baltimore um, when I was very, very young, growing up in the dark room. So learning how to tell stories through multiple formats was something that was literally bred into me and reinforced as I got older in so many ways through music, through prose, through poetry, through just expression and storytelling in my writing um, and in my artistry. Wow. My dad was a truck driver and my mom was a waitress. <laughs> <laughs> so we had no introduction to music or you know, photography or dancing, nothing artistic. I know they had some awesome stories to tell though. Yeah, hard knock stories. You know, some little bit of street smarts, maybe. A whole lot of street smarts coming out of Baltimore. <laughs> well, the military saved me. Can you tell us about your military experience? What prompted you to join the Navy and then abandon ship for the Army? Uh, what were your jobs during your military career? And how did you break into the journalism field? Because you did not join as a journalist. I actually joined undesignated. I was a jail striker. But we're going to get to that. So I went into the Navy because I had a daughter and I wanted a house and I needed benefits. And we had a family friend. We call him Papoose. Papoose um, is a long, longstanding military member. And he came to our home one day, as he usually did, to hang out with us and my mom. And, and he said to me, you know, you really need to consider military service because all the things you think would not make you ideal would actually make you stellar. Things like being self-motivated, being disciplined, being willing to fight for what I believe in, being able to follow directions, being able to write. Um, I, was, I was a specialist in curriculum in my civilian life. Um, I had experience in so many areas because literally everything I wanted to do, I actually got to do, except become a cardiothoracic surgeon, but we'll talk about that another time. But it was really something that, that caught my attention because I was someone who was a little bit of an introvert, as I'm sure you can tell. No, I'm an extra extrovert. I love people, um, but I also am, some, am someone who always stood up to fight for what I believed in. And those tenets, those deep held beliefs and my faith led me to military service. And I got into it and learned that I was actually brilliant at it. And I went a lot further than I thought I would. Um, my jobs, when I first got in, my first job was as a, a, a gate sentry. You know, I was working with the master at arms and I did that for a long time. And then on a chance occasion, I, I actually met the CEO having lunch one day and he said, why don't you, you know, come and do duty with me? So then I started doing message traffic uh, with the CEO and the EXO uh, for my duty. I didn't have to do it with, with the gate sentry. I, I went up to the big house to do it. And there's a saying that rank has its privilege, but my privilege has always exceeded my rank because of those relationships and those chance encounters meeting people. I found myself uh, being invited to the retirement of the Admiral, the, the head guy in the Navy, um, because someone heard me sing at a military church service. So they invited me to sing to honor him and his retirement after 35 years of service. So chance encounters like that, like literally being myself in any environment, 
has led to the most remarkable experiences. And then I had a uniform that I loved to wear. And I was proud of when I came home. Whenever I went home on leave, my father would parade me around the city. Gosh, usually in my in my whites. And I would say, can I just please go change my clothes? I said, no, no, no. Let's make a couple more stops. I want to show some more people. <laughs> you come from a military family? Yes, my grandfather was a Marine. My father is a Marine. Um, my love is a Marine. Um, so you can tell I love Marines. <laughs> On my dad's side, you know, it was eight boys and two girls. On my mom's side, it was six girls. It wasn't something that was encouraged for girls. The boys had their sports. You know, the girls were encouraged to be become educated, go to college. And then I also had my artistic career as well. But there was such a sense of pride with my dad. When he would parade me around, now this is funny because I went in a little bit older, I was 20, but when I went in, I would come home for leave. My father used to take me with him to his little, his little hole in the wall, his little spot that he would go have a beer after work called the Bear's Den. And it was across the street from my aunt's house. He would introduce me to everybody in the room and he would say, I'm going to buy you a beer, but you have to sit over there to drink it because you're not that old yet. <laughs> but there was just such an incredible sense of pride. Um, just being a member, being proud of my service and being a woman who became successful in my service became a source of uh, energy for my dad that I never expected. What made you choose the Navy over the Marines? I, I was never interested in being in the Marines. I was interested in being with Marines. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, you know, there's a delicate balance between the services, what we do and how we do it to support each other and the function of defending this country. And for me, the Navy had the best combination of intellectual challenge and authority that went into every fight. It wasn't imbalanced for me. I wasn't someone who was big on weaponry, even though I was great at it and, and could stand up when the time came for that. But I'm a thinker. I'm a planner. I'm someone who thinks strategically and logically. Um, and the creative side, I'm, I'm an equal left brain thinker. So the creative part of that helps make me more brilliant with the logical part. Um, and it just turned out to be a great fit. I loved the studies. I loved the camaraderie. I loved um, the energy, even the smell of being on a ship and at sea, even though I never got to serve on a ship. Did you go to college before you went into the Navy or did you go to college at all? Yes. I started college at 16. I also went to trade school and I worked full time. What college did you go to? What trade school did you go to? What was your major and what was your trade? I started at Morgan State University as a music major, philosophy minor, transferred to University of Maryland into journalism, continued that through my service, continued that education through my service and even after my service at University of Maryland. Had a couple of pit stops along the way, but I was a single mother. So I had to make some choices along the way, sometimes between work and my education that were crucial to survival of my family. I probably have had more college than anybody I know. <laughs> so you were actually exposed to journalism in college? I was exposed to journalism before college. I started in broadcast in the second grade. Right, but... You took courses in journalism in college? I did. I took courses in journalism in college, but I took courses in journalism before I went to college. Um, my alma mater, my high school, Baltimore City College High School, is the third oldest public high school in the country. Incredible legacy. I tell everyone I grew up in a castle because I did. And um, 
there I studied the humanities and law and it gave me exposure and opportunities to write in spaces I might not have had had I not gone to city. So let's jump to podcasting. Sure. You actually are a podcast pioneer um, and recently were named a top 40 over 40 in 2022 by the podcast magazine and impact journalist of the month in March by let's rethink this. Congratulations for those honors. Thank you. Thank you so much. You literally have a pedigree in this industry that people cannot touch, but we all begin somewhere. Uh, for you, it was officially in 2007 when you led one of the largest podcasts in the world. In just two years, your podcast gained over 5 million downloads. How does that happen? Uh, that was before podcasting was even a thing. Uh, can you tell us about that podcast? Uh, what was it called and what happened to it? Well, I started podcasting in 2007, but that opportunity didn't come until much later. I led a team of women for a company called Black Girl Nerds. And it was a company that delved into the arts, sciences, television, film. I was a, a film and culture critic for the organization. And we built a podcast team of 40 young women who I taught the ropes on podcasting and then grew that podcast organically. No ad sales, no extra publicity. We just reached out to the people who had incredible stories to tell about how they were living and changing the world. And we did it together and had some really amazing opportunities that came out of that. Where the organization is now, I do not know. I'm no longer in contact with them. At one point, it was defunct, and I knew I know it was revived, but that relationship ended over an event that did not go well um, with the leadership of the company. So I left, actually, before anyone knew I left. Uh, and I still stay in touch with quite a few of the, the, the women that I uh, led in that effort and trained with in that effort, and they are all doing remarkably well. Most of them are still actually podcasting. How did you even find out about podcasting back then? Uh, how did I hear about That's a good question, Lori. Um, in 2007, I was pregnant with my youngest daughter and forced on bed rest. And all I had was my little white Apple laptop and a snowball microphone. And I needed something to do because I don't, I don't do well staying still. You know this. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> <laughs> so I discovered podcasting and it was still in its infancy and there were still a lot of steps and uh, a lot of hurdles to get through to actually get to a broadcast. But my original podcast was called Enter the Grand Divine. And it was a mix of uh, spirituality and Christian music that was purposed to be inspiring and energizing and to continue to tell stories. And I had that podcast for maybe 10 years. And over between 2007 and now, I've pr produced more than 70 podcasts. Um, it's just a medium that I really love. For me, it is the ultimate expression of our First Amendment. It is not regulated by the FCC like radio is. So I could say things and do things through a podcast that I could not do through radio because of time limitations, because of regulations, because of what we now know, uh, the music restrictions, things like that um, didn't exist back in 2007. Um, when digital music was still in its infancy, uh, podcasting was absolutely still in its infancy, but it was something I found that I could do, take pride in and connect with people, even though I was on bed rest and I just kept going. How did you share it back then? What were the platforms? Oh, there was only one platform and that was iTunes. That was it. Oh, okay. 
that was it. There were no other platforms other than iTunes. And again, it was still a format that most people did not know about. So most of the uh, marketing I did was organic. I had to invite people and the only people that could listen to it could only listen to it through iTunes or if they had an iPod or iPhone. We didn't have Androids back then either. (laughs) I'm I'm asking because I'm just fascinated with the history of podcasting and you're the person to ask. Oh, thank you. And but coming up in an environment with a, a brand new medium that grew quickly, but it's really exploded in the last four or five years. So much has changed as far as uh, podcasting in, is concerned. The podcasters have changed. The uh, money that changes hands has changed a lot when it comes to podcasting. Uh, back then, it was free. You didn't have to pay for anything. You just had to know where to go to get your voice out. And I was able to do that. And it was largely without restriction. It was something I did to keep my brain alive uh, while my body was processing and hurting and trying to bring this amazing human being into the world. You can see my baby. But (laughs) it was a beautiful and remarkable time to be involved with something in its infancy and to watch it grow throughout the years has been really remarkable. So the entire part of last year, I was on tour. I went on a, a short tour talking about podcasting and profits and how you make money from podcasting, that it's not, doesn't have to be just a hobby. It is a profit strategy for companies, for corporations, for entrepreneurs, for authors, for ministry. It is a brilliant way to connect with people in community and to get your message to the world and amplify the voices of those uh, that you believe in. Yes, and you're gonna help me with this podcast. I sure will. <laughs> <laughs> well, you told me you would, so I'm not, I'm not just assuming that, that you will. I did. So this might be a, a delicate question, but it's it's one that I have to ask. And I think it's one that you want to answer. What was it like being a black woman podcaster? And I'm assuming it was a white male dominated space uh, that had to have been a challenge. Do you think that experience led you to an insatiable drive to succeed as well as contribute to a life of activism, which we're going to get to in a little bit? Actually, no, my life of activism was instilled in me by both of my parents, because even though my dad was an artist, he was also a politician. And although my mother is an artist, she was also a teacher. So civic duty was ingrained in us from the time I was born. I make a joke that I've been working the polls since I could walk. Mm. <laughs> I can work a pole. But um, it's literally true. Me, uh, my, my sister, all of our children from the time we could walk had to work elections. We worked campaigns when we were still going door to door. We understood at a very young age what it meant to create a campaign and support a community. My father as a community organizer and has run for office and run the campaigns of most of the Democratic Party in the city of Baltimore and and most of the state of Maryland since the time I was a child. So I was always in that environment as well. As a Black woman in podcasting, honestly, I didn't know any other Black women who were podcasting. My greatest benefit in podcasting early on was anonymity. It wasn't something where I had to show my face. This was during a time, well, this this is still a time where when I present, I clearly present as a Black woman. Sometimes that can limit availability, possibilities, limit opportunities. When there is no, no face, when there is no color behind that mic, but you can make a real difference in someone's life with a microphone, with a purpose. It went a lot further than I ever expected. 
it caused me to include activism in my podcasting. It caused me to make space for others to learn how to work this medium and do more than just hear themselves talk. And, and that's one of the reasons that you, that you put together that training for the 40 women. Yes. And we trained and we talked about it for a long time. And then over the years, I've had other um, opportunities to train people who wanted to learn about podcasting, wanted to learn about its profitability, um, and just wanted to understand more about the incredible freedom that it provides. When we did our pre-interview in preparation for this podcast, um, it was March 8th, which happens to be International Women's Day. And on that day, you relaunched your website in celebration of that special day. Let's talk more about women in this business. Let's continue that conversation. Staying on the topic of uh, that team of 40 women, can you share with us how it felt to expand our presence in this field? And can you pass on a few key lessons from that training that is still relevant today? Yes. Well, the training for, for those women was ongoing. And I wasn't alone in the effort, but I, I, I think I um, spearheaded, I know I spearheaded that effort and that training basic tenets of um, our skill set as journalists came in very handy. Interviewing skills, understanding what dead air is, understanding how to uh, direct a conversation or an interview that goes bad. That was probably my most um, exciting training that I've ever done is navigating an interview when it's going really bad. Because it happens. It happens to all of us. You know, um, you might have someone who has a really interesting part of their life or a part of their work, but they are completely flat or they are completely unprepared for media exposure, for media access and to show up on camera or on the mic. It's just a fact of life. That is something that still gets a lot of attention and I still teach privately. But understanding how to construct a story, how to build up momentum, how to pull it up to the crescendo and bring it back down to a decrescendo, how to get your point across and being objective without being offensive. Somebody's always going to be offended, but it's not intentional. Well, usually you're not intentional, um, but actually in podcasting, you can, you can be an equal opportunity offender. If you choose to, who's going to check you. It's something you own it. Well, depending on what platform you're on, but it belongs to you. It is something you create and you have creative and intellectual control over. So when I was working with these young women, it was a real education for me as well to find out, to discover where those skill sets and natural gifts lie that could be cultivated and, and really nurtured into some really great speakers and amazing broadcasters now. Can you uh, fill us in about your businesses? Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, I really want to know about them. Oh, for sure. Um, so Quran is a media group, which is um, my umbrella. We basically use our voices to tell our stories. It is where podcasting lives. It is where the Center for Sensual Arts lives. It's basically an umbrella of communications, services, education, and goods that I continue to deliver uh, to artists and entrepreneurs um, all over the world. And I'm really privileged to be able to do that. Quranism Audio is the hub for Coronism uh, podcast. It's the hub for our production company. It's also the hub for Coronism Voices, which is a voiceover agency, which developed over time because voiceover was another thing I, I learned to do when I was pregnant with that little one back in 2007 because I couldn't move. All I had was a mic in my computer. 
but I learned how to make it work. And that's grown over the years to a really successful voiceover career. So I help train other voiceover artists and teach them how to uh, create and develop businesses um, as a voiceover artist um, for video games, for television, film, commercial, um, even for phone systems, because Siri didn't come out of nowhere. She was a voice artist first. So... <laughs> And then the Center for Sensual Arts. The Center for Sensual Arts is really near and dear to my heart because I believe in experience life, experiencing life through all of my senses, through my work, and through the relationships I have the privilege to be a part of. I always have been a huge believer in love. A big part of that work has been my radio show, which was syndicated for over 15 years throughout the country. And we talked about love, sex, and relationships. So the Center for Sensual Arts is really about coming back to ourselves so we can have healthier, stronger relationships with ourselves and with each other. And I continue that work through uh, coaching, as well as through radio broadcasts and uh, developing podcasts that are specifically about love, sex, and relationships. Where are you based out of? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm. How did you end up there? My middle daughter, uh, Cameron, was having a really brilliant introduction into uh, her management career. And she got an opportunity uh, to move into management here in Charlottesville. And we came to visit and fell in love with this little town. Um, this was after the Tiki Torch Parade. But uh, <laughs> we fell in love with this little town and I, I literally followed her here to support her. And then the pandemic happened. We, we were about to move back to Charlotte, North Carolina, but the world shut down the week we were supposed to move. And we decided to stay and we're still here. And um, my youngest daughter is thriving as a touring musician and cosmonaut. I call her my little cosmonaut because she does space camp and all these things, wonderful oh. things that I've never had a chance to do. Um, but she's also a really accomplished musician. And uh, so she's she's touring with her band at school and com competing. And uh, my middle daughter is uh, doing brilliant work working in the medical field and also as a community manager in the digital space. Um, and my eldest daughter is... Um, a wonderful mother and gave me all of my grandchildren. Um, she's not here physically with us in this location, but it became, it's really easy for me to get home because my parents are still in Baltimore. So it's only a few hours away. It's really easy for me to get to North Carolina. It's a few hours away in the other direction. So it's a nice centrally located space. I'm a city girl. I'm still getting used to some things, but <laughs> I have my, my life partner. I love, he's here with me. And, uh, Everybody's thriving here and I have the space and peace to be able to uh, continue to be supported as I grow these businesses and continue to, to establish connections with new people in a new community, which I'm really just being able to start doing because everything was shut down for so long. Right. So I'm just starting to get out more. Besides podcasting, what other forms of journalism do you do? I'm a writer. I still do radio. I still, radio is my first love. It really is. It's my first love. So I'm, I'm really contemplating. Um, as you know, I, I'd owned a radio station for five years. I'm really considering doing that. I remember right before the pandemic, all of the urban radio stations here locally shut down on the same day. They all did. Mm. So that connection to the community um, was pretty much gone Everything else was syndicated, kind of brought in from outside of the community. So I'm looking at some some ways to um, to get back there. And uh, I have a goal to hire, to train 100 producers by the end of this year, uh, whether that be in podcasting or in radio. 
but I want to make sure that people in journalism know that there are more opportunities than just being um, in front of a camera. There's so many opportunities when it comes to just exercising your mind and your hands to actually write. I know AI is such a huge thing right now. And people are wondering if artificial intelligence is gonna take our jobs, but nothing will ever take the place of the human voice, which is why I'm an audio forward company. Let's switch gears to MVJ. Yes. I first met you at the MVJ convention in DC in October. Uh, in fact, we shared the stage for at least one panel. I figured right away that you were a force of nature. Oh, Lord. And MVJ is so lucky to have you. You don't have an official title or role, but you do step up when you're asked, like being on the Speakers Bureau and on webinar panels. Can you tell us about that Speakers Bureau and how you share your lived experience navigating the VA system? Yes, the Speakers Bureau um, was a wonderful opportunity that I didn't see coming. I became a part of MVJ. There's a local journalist here who is a part of the team who I never actually met in person, never got a chance to meet her in person. I think she's since moved on from here, but still connected, you know, through LinkedIn Digital Spaces. The opportunities we had to learn together and to share together our experiences as veterans, our experiences as journalists just was something that really enriched my life. So whenever there was an opportunity for me to show up and I could, I did. The Speakers Bureau is very special to me in that I get a chance to go um, across this country, digitally and physically in person, to talk about intersectionality and bringing more journalists into newsrooms. I get to talk about the value we bring as a diverse workforce, the value we bring as military members and veterans, the value we bring as trained and skilled journalists to cover areas with more responsibility than has been shown, more respect than has been shown in areas like disability and like being a woman who served and like being a black woman who served and being someone who served and has service connected disabilities. That's a different kind of life, you know, different things to navigate and navigating the VA system for me was very difficult. I did have support, but it wasn't enough support. And unfortunately, we still live in a world where I walk into any office in the VA and the first question is, who's your husband? Hmm. I'm never asked if I'm the member. It's never assumed that I'm the member. It's assumed that even I could be walking with my Richard into the VA with a gold Navy jacket on, big old Navy hat. He's got on his Marine Corps cap. He is cute. He's really cute. But he's got on his Marine Corps hat. He'll have five, six people walk up to him and shake his hand. I'm like, what am I, chop liver? Was he even in the military? Yes. Okay. Yes, he served, okay. In, the Marine, he served in the Marine Corps and the Army as well. So we both have dual service. And, and then we grew up together. So we've known each other for a really long time. But the fact that I don't walk into a space and it's even thought that I'm the person that served, even if I'm alone. Um, that's something that I want to change that still bothers me. Also, I'm someone who lives with invisible disability. My, invis my disabilities are service-connected. Um, they are progressive. So as time goes on, life can become more difficult without support. And I want a really, really long time um, without access to care, especially through the VA, because until President Obama got in the office, we didn't have women's health care at the VA. We had to pay for our own health care. We had to go somewhere else to have our babies. 
we had to go somewhere else if we were having um, challenges or difficulty with anything that had to do with our reproductive health. There's so many stories of mishandling of women and botched surgeries of women within the VA. And this is not to shame the VA because a lot of the work they do is really great, but a lot of it is really dismissive when it comes to women who have served. We are the forgotten breed of the military. I'm also affiliated with an organization called Women Veterans Interactive Foundation. And its leader, Ginger Bain Miller, is joyfully one of my close friends, but she's also the person who helped me navigate the system when I became homeless because I could not, I did not have care and helped me find that care. So that's also an organization that I show up for. We show up for each other. No one is left behind. As a civilian, as a veteran, I am so proud to serve military veterans in journalism in any way that I can. I'm a member of the team. Yes, yes, you're my team member. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I know I asked you this already, but uh, I will be seeing you at the convention in October in New York City, right? Absolutely. Oh, we yes. We had a ball. Oh, we, we did have a ball. such a wonderful time. We had such a wonderful time in, in D.C. last year. It was beautifully done. It was one of the most connected conferences I'd ever been to. They were so much to glean from, so many people to learn from. I left there a better person. I left there a better veteran. I left there a better uh, service member and with a different respect for the heroes that we walk amongst every day. It's really just been a brilliant experience. And Russell and Zach and the rest of the team have just always been so incredibly supportive of everything I've ever asked. It doesn't matter whether it was a question or um, I've had quite a few visits to the White House in the last year and being inclusive of celebrating those wins, celebrating someone who has um, found a new purpose or is getting better in their healthcare journey or is finding resources they may not have had before. Without this connection, my life would not be as rich as it is. And it's only been a couple of years, but it's really been a blessing to be a part of this organization. Yeah, I'll never forget the, the laughs we shared uh, after the convention and we were back at the hotel and we were outside and it was freezing <laughs> but you know we still were out there and russell was having a blast and he deserved every single laugh he had and i was out there singing you remember me oh, singing? it was so fun and i think i told you this that uh i went to the convention to accept the volunteer of the year award for doing yes, the podcast did. and then i didn't want to go because my mom was um in hospice at the time and she'd only been with me two weeks and they told me she had about a month left. Mm. So I didn't want to go. And she's like, you have to go to this convention. You have to go accept this award. I would feel terrible if you didn't go because of me. When I left on a Friday, she was great. And then when I got to the airport in Detroit, they're like, you need to go straight to hospice because she was in the house. And then they transported her to an actual hospice facility. So I rushed, you know, rushed the hour back to hospice and I brought my award up with me and I handed it to her and she couldn't speak. But I handed it to her and she held it and she, I can tell that she was, she wanted to say something. I could see the pride in her and she handed it back and two hours later she passed away. My goodness. So um, that convention will always mean something to me because she held that award. It's the last thing she held. Award. Because I remember you speaking when you got the award and I was just so touched. There was just a tear falling out of my eye. 
um, I was so touched because you didn't see it coming. And it was just a beautiful moment. And I'm so sorry to hear about your mother's passing, but I'm so glad that you got a chance to be there and she got a chance to celebrate with her before she went on home to glory. Thank you. Is there anything you like to talk about that I haven't thought to ask that you think our listeners would want to know? Because I know they're biting at the bit to get some information from you. Can you can you share some advice for those trying to break into podcasting or or some other form of journalism, especially if they're transitioning from the military into journalism? Yes. The first thing I, I want to say is um, thank you for having me. Um, podcasting is near and dear to my heart, but the thing that's really saved my life has been entrepreneurship. And it's not presented as an option for us when we get out. There's support for education, but there's not support for entrepreneurship. Not really. There's not real training unless you go back to school for it and going to school is very different than being in the real world. So I would say consider entrepreneurship in journalism as a journalist. The skill set we bring to the table in any area of communications is going to be far above and beyond what you're going to get from someone who's never served. The discipline, the ability to tell stories, the way we tell stories, the impact our stories had, it makes a difference. And we need more veterans in newsrooms. We need more coverage for veterans. We need more coverage to tell the truth about what's really happening with the VA instead of people assuming what happens with military members in the VA. I also want to say that one of my purposes in life is to destigmatize mental health. We all have our stuff. But the truth is, some of us need more help than others at different times in our lives. And we have to destigmatize getting help for our mental health is just as important as our physical health, if not more important. Our ability to function in the face of the things of what we face, even as journalists, what goes on in the world, what's in the news cycle, the news cycle changing and speeding up so quickly when it comes to politics, when it comes to war, when it comes to all of these things we cover, a lot of them are really, really tough. They're tough to hear, especially if you're not working in it. And oftentimes what we discover in the process of developing a story is also tough to manage. So I wanna remind us to take care of ourselves and each other when it comes to our mental health. And as far as podcasting is concerned, it doesn't have to be a hobby. It is a wealth building strategy and it can definitely be a wealth building strategy to add to uh, your repertoire to any business, even being a podcast guest, guest, if you have a story to tell, if you've written a book, if you are uh, concerned about what goes on in the world, or if you just want to have some fun with some friends with some interesting lives, then this is a way that you can have your voice heard nearly without restriction, but with responsibility. And it's one I take very seriously and it's still one I enjoy. One of my last questions, if not the last question, with everything that you're doing, how do you manage your time? How, how do you find time to sleep at night? I don't sleep. I got to know. <laughs> don't sleep. I'll what sleep is a I'm typical gone. day for you? Oh, gosh. Oh. Nobody's ever asked me that, Lori. Okay, a typical day for me is I have one daughter that works brilliantly with 
in two different jobs. One of her jobs is from home. One of her uh, jobs is um, outside of the home. So transport for her. Um, I have the musician, the musician cosmonaut in the house who has amazing opportunities and I want her to take advantage of every last one of them. So um, I'm basically an Uber for my house. My Richard is also a disabled vet. We're in a space right now where we get to choose how we work and contribute to the world. It's very different from growing up and being dependent on work to do that. I'm able to work anywhere in the world and I plan to be more places in the world to work or not work, buy some water and maybe some sand. But a typical day in my life looks like I write a lot at night. I record a lot at night. I kind of feel like Prince, a kinship's Prince, because he has thousands of compositions that never see the light of day. And I have a body of work that's similar to that. But I do my best work at night. I do speak at conferences across the country. Um, I love my work as a speaker, not just because I, I, I'm an entertainer naturally, but just because I love being in a room with people who don't know what to expect and delivering something unexpected to them. It just, it brings me great joy. So, you know, a few times a month, I'm gone for a few days on a road trip. My Richard and, and my daughters hold down the fort. Like my little one, she just, she's on spring break right now. I call her my little one. She's so not little. She's as tall as I am. She's 14, but she just came back from a, a trip and has another competition going on next weekend. And just, we make it work. Um, but I do my, I do most of my work, my best work at night. I do still teach. Uh, but the joy of it is because I am retired, I get to decide when I do what. And one of the biggest lessons I learned from last year. I was on the road nearly every week for four months straight. One of the lessons I learned from last year is I don't have to say yes to everything and to listen to my body because when my body says, don't go, you're not going to see me. But I also you know I'll push through to show up in some places. If it's really important to me, I'll just let the folk around me who I know care about me and love me know that I'm struggling a little bit at the moment, either with pain or with a physical ailment or just not having a great day. Uh, but I, I genuinely love the life I have. I love the love that surrounds me, um, both in my home and with MVJ and WVIF and, um, and the many organizations and, and businesses I get a chance to speak to throughout the year. I'm looking forward to going into more colleges this year to talk about military service and to speak about um, our plight as women in the military, as well as disability. I'm looking forward to going into more newsrooms this year and encouraging news directors to hire more veterans. Yeah, you wear a lot of hats, including the Navy hat that you have on at present. Great salute. I know uh, people can't see us, but she just saluted. So awesome. <laughs> yes, indeed. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I want world peace. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, don't we all? I want world peace. I want us to love each other more. And I want to, uh, I'm going to continue this fight to make sure our women veterans are respected for our service the same way our male comrades are, our counterparts are. I want to make sure that our voices are continu continue to be heard, not just in our veteran stories, but in our stories as women, as women of color, as women who are part of the LGBTQ experience, and to just continue to be one of the leading voices when it comes to inclusion, not performative inclusion, but actual inclusion. That's very important to me, um, especially being disabled, 
being someone with invisible disabilities where people can't see. I look fabulous when you see me. You don't know what's going on, you know, all under this hat. It's a lot going on under here. But uh, um, we're not always what we seem and we're not a monolith. Um, so as long as I can continue using my voice to tell our stories, I'm honored to do so. Well, please keep being you and do what you do. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, um, Karan Lenoir, for sharing with us your vast experience of podcasting and journalism and activism. I'm sure some of our listeners want to start a podcast, but just either doesn't know where to start or they don't have the confidence to get it started. I hope this gives them the gentle push they just might need. Before I bid farewell, I encourage you to smash that follow button on Spotify for podcasters and subscribe. You know, I got that idea from you. Did you? <laughs> you know, it's like you you have to ask for support. Ask for the sale. You got to ask for the sale. <laughs> you, you, you know, you got to have an actionable moment at the end of your podcast or before or during. Yes. You'd also love it if you would share this episode on all of your social media platforms. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Sword and Pen. I am your host, Lori King. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Sword and Pen a military veterans in journalism podcast.